Isaiah chapter 43. I believe the Lord um, has a word for us, not only for this morning, but for this new year. And I believe that uh, this word from Isaiah 43 is important because uh, it will do three key things in our lives. If we live by these verses, um, I believe God will do three things in our life. First of all, I think He will bring a greater freedom to our hearts and minds, and we'll explain that as we go along. But we will have a release and, and a freedom that maybe doesn't exist in our hearts even right now. Second thing I believe it will do will be to positively impact our personal relationships and to change the way we relate to each other and to bring strength to those relationships. And finally, uh, I believe that this verse will give us a new perspective and a fresh understanding of the goodness of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I need all three of those things in my life. I need a greater um, freedom in my mind from things that I worry about and fear and am stressed about. I need uh, a greater um, impact in my relationships, that they would be stronger, that there would be no tension in any relationship that I have, and I really want a greater understanding of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. I've been saved 40 years and I'm hungry for an even greater awareness of the faithfulness of God. Aren't you? Don't, don't you want to just know more and more about the goodness of God? He has been so faithful to us. And so good to us. And so gracious to us. And as I get older, I realize how much I'm not deserving of that. And how much He has just showed mercy and poured out mercy on our lives. Now, the Spirit gives us insight in this text on how we can have each of those things, but it's going to require for us a different way of thinking. In fact, it really requires a different way of living from what is our natural human tendency. As believers, we are constantly fighting a battle, and I hope we remember that every day. I'm sure we do because the battle is so pervasive, but but we've been sanctified by Christ. We've been transformed from the old to the new. Uh, we have been delivered out of sin. And as we have moved from the old man to the new man, we're released from the bondage of sin, we're released from the control of sin, but we are still fighting against our humanity. And while Christ has secured our salvation, and while He has purified us from sin, and He's released us from its curse, and while the Spirit is renewing our minds daily and convicting us to walk in holiness, and if you're a believer this morning, all those things have already been done. All those things have been accomplished by the Lord. But even after all those things have happened, we are still in an intense spiritual battle that is trying to incite us to live by the flesh. You feel that, right? I feel that every day. The, the, the enticement, the temptation, the pull to live by the flesh. I know better. I've been released from it, so I know the difference. I, I know that it's displeasing to God. I know that there's no way it's going to turn out well if I live by the flesh. But there's still that enticement. And sometimes the temptation is incredibly subtle. Sometimes the devil does it in a way that makes it almost seem logical to, to turn against the Lord. It makes it seem like common sense. And it's so familiar and so common to us that, that many times we don't feel like it's unusual or even wrong. Now, 
part of walking by the Spirit, and many of you are, are seasoned saints, but part of walking by the Spirit is training our minds to recognize even the most subtle temptation. To be on guard, to be wary, to say, no, that doesn't look right. There's something wrong there. There's something that, 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 that's pulling on my heart that is contrary to how the Lord wants me to live and will not be pleasing to the Lord. And then, once we recognize it, to have the courage and discipline to live that way. See, we can recognize it. Well, there's temptation, and boy, that's, that's strong, and I need to stay away from that. But if we don't have the courage to resist it and take the path of escape and, and fight the good fight and walk according to the Holy Spirit, then it doesn't matter if we recognize it. If it was sitting on the wall, we yielded to it. Everything in life is about what you yield to. Everything in life is about who you yield to. We either yield to the devil or we yield to the Lord. Those are the only two options. The devil fools us into thinking we yield to ourselves, but in yielding to ourselves, we're really yielding to him. So that's the choice. Yield to the Lord or yield to the devil. And one of the reasons why God is so extensive in describing what happens with Israel in the Old Testament is because he wants us to learn from it what to do, and especially what not to do. And as I've thought through this this week and prayed about it, I believe Israel's greatest sin was self-sufficiency. They acted like they didn't need the Lord. And in their minds, many times, they didn't feel like they needed the Lord. And when they did need the Lord, often it was for all the wrong reasons. And one thing we see in Israel's behavior all throughout the Old Testament is that their hearts got hardened and they were resistant to the Lord and they started to follow false gods because any time we get hardened to the Lord, we try to find another God to follow. And they just didn't want to be, maybe we should call it inconvenienced to trust the Lord or to obey the Lord. Bottom line is they just didn't want to give in. They just did not want to yield. They were stubborn, and they were hard-hearted, and they were resistant, and all the other words we could use. And that attitude, that attitude of not wanting to give in, is what hurts and hinders us in so many ways. Think about a, a recent argument you had with your spouse or one of your kids where, where you didn't want to give in. You didn't want to yield, even when you knew you were wrong, right? And we have those times, I know I'm wrong, I'm in the middle of an argument, I know the other person has the right approach, but I don't want to give in. I'm not going to yield. Anybody ever do that? You don't have to raise your hands, but I'll raise my hand. I don't want to give in. I know I'm completely wrong and it shows on my face, but I'm not giving in. Or we have a, a discussion at work, and, or, or we have a discussion with a family member or a friend or whatever, and we don't, we don't want to yield the point. We, we just get stubborn, even though we know it's, it's not the right way to go, but, but we just don't want to give in. It's that mindset that prevents so many people from giving their lives to Jesus Christ. They don't want to yield to Him as Lord. They'll take Him as Savior, but when you start saying that now you're in charge of my life, no, nah, I can't do that. I'd love to be delivered from sin. I'd love to be freed from sin. But, but I'd like to still have the freedom to do whatever I want. That's not how it works. When we give our lives to Christ, He becomes Lord and Master. Now the gracious thing about God is, He's not iron-fisted. But when we give our lives to Christ, He becomes Lord. And that was Israel's chronic problem. God showed them mercy God delivered them, God led them, 
He gave them his law. He gave them multiple promises. He led them to a land that was all theirs. He delivered them in the land. He gave them prosperity. And they still just refused to humbly yield to him. So we get to the place of Isaiah. And Isaiah comes along and he ministered at the end of Uzziah's life. That's 2 Chronicles 26. That gives you a little perspective. And, and Isaiah comes along about 700 years before Christ. And his job was to say to the people, you need to turn back to God. You've gotten astray, you've gotten stubborn, you've gotten hard-hearted, and you need to turn back to God and recognize that he's the only hope of salvation. The problem was, at the time Isaiah ministered, both Israel and Judah, the top ten tribes, Israel, the lower two tribes, Judah, both Israel and Judah were at a time of great prosperity and great power, and they didn't think they needed God. And they even thought that they were strong enough to withstand the nations that were around them that were starting to threat them. It started with Assyria, which was to the northeast. And the Assyrians were, were wicked, wicked, cruel people. If you ever want to really be sick to your stomach, do some research on what the Assyrians did to their enemies. They were nasty, nasty people. And they started to get more powerful. And Israel and Judah looked at Assyria and said, no big deal. We can handle this. We're strong. And we've got an army. And we can, we can withstand that. But eventually Assyria came down and completely devastated the top ten tribes of the nation of Israel. And they took them into captivity. And then they plugged their own people into the nation. They brought pagan culture into Israel and, and kind of repopulated the land. And they had their sights set on Judah, but God withstood that. But eventually, Babylon would come along and would capture Judah and devastate Judah and destroy Jerusalem and carry the people away. Israel's never really been the same since. Now, both Israel and Judah had allowed their hearts to really get hardened before the Lord. And their pride and their immorality and their love of idols all combined to... to bring in God's discipline. But through it all, Isaiah is still saying God's faithful. And Isaiah is still calling the people back to God. And Isaiah is still saying God is going to restore this nation someday. He's going to bring a Savior. And he has a plan to bring us back into this land and to restore us. But first, we are going to have to turn our hearts back to the Lord. Now, if you glance over at chapter 42... Starting in verse 17, I thought this would be good just to get some perspective for a moment. Look how far Israel had gone. Verse 17, they'll be turned back and be utterly put to shame, who trusts in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. He's describing Israel here. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf is my messenger whom I send, who is so blind as he that is at peace with me, or so blind is the servant of the Lord. You've seen many things, verse 20, but you don't observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or hidden away in prisons. They become a prey with none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave joy, Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we've sinned and whose ways they were not willing to walk and whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger 
and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around. Yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him because he paid no attention. That's the state of Israel and Judah at this point. Isaiah is both describing what is current and describing what is going to happen. He says, God was gracious. He gave you the law. He gave you every opportunity, and you just ignored him. You turned against him, and now his wrath is being poured out on you. And if we stopped at the end of chapter 42, we'd be depressed. Because we'd say, wow, that's what God does when people turn away. And it's deserved. And Israel and Judah at this point are facing, I love that phrase, the heat of his anger. In other words, God is ticked off. And God is justified in being ticked off. And he's about to pour out some stuff onto Israel that they can't even handle. But here's the grace of God. Look at the next verse, starting in chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you're precious in my sight, since you're honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. When we study the book of Isaiah, there can be no doubt that God is gracious. When we study this book, there can be no doubt that God shows love and mercy to his people, even though we don't deserve it. And we may question how God would want anything to do with this people who had rebelled against him and was worshiping false idols and how they had rejected him, let alone that he would show them mercy and keep his word to deliver them and restore them until we realize that he's done exactly the same thing for us through Christ. Whenever I study Israel, I look at them and I say, God, why would you be gracious to them? Why would you show them mercy? Why, when they rebelled and rejected you and followed false gods and and didn't trust you and didn't follow your leading and, and, and turned against you, why would you bother to deliver them? And why would you send a Savior? And why would you still have a plan that hasn't been completed yet, but someday will? And then God, every time I think that says, I did the exact same thing for you. I delivered you from your sin. I delivered you from your rebellion. I changed your heart, and I did it through Jesus Christ. That's what God has done for us. And that's why when we get to chapter 43 and the verses we're going to read in a second, it is so crucial for us to understand this principle. Because there are many layers to it and many layers of application. What we're about to study for the next couple minutes is about our relationship with the Lord. If we're motivated by love and we're motivated by a desire to please him in every way, then that will lead us to walk away from our past and walk in the new life that he's given to us. It's also about our resistance to sin because we need to be disgusted by our sin. How many times are we absolutely sick to our stomach, disgusted when we sin? Or how many times do we go, oh yeah, I shouldn't have done that, Lord, I'm sorry, and kind of get past it. 
I've been saved 40 years. Sin should absolutely make me sick to my stomach. Every time I sin, I should be on my face saying, Lord, I'm so sorry. How could I have offended you? That one sin right there put Christ on the cross. So we should be disgusted by sin, and we should know what it cost Christ on the cross, and and that should compel us to fight temptation and resist sin like we never have before. It's also, and, and more importantly, this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, it's about our refusal to be controlled by situations about people who have damaged us. Because when we live in resentment and when we live in regret, it only damages us more than we were hurt in the first place. And God's the only one that can deliver us from that and bring about a new work. So let's read our text. And it's a long introduction. I'll try to be brief. Start in verse 16 of chapter 43. And let's see what the Lord says to us this morning. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They've been quenched and extinguished like a wick. Verse 18 is our key verse. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people who I form for myself will declare my praise. Now, let's break this apart a little bit, maybe take some notes this morning just so it's not just me talking, you're interacting with the text. The way this is written is somewhat ironic because in verses 16 and 17, the Lord reminds them of what he's done in the past. And he points to probably the greatest miracle in the Old Testament when he delivered uh, the Jewish nation through the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's armies. Now in one breath, God says, remember that. Let me remind you of what I did. And then he turns around in verse 18 and he says, now don't call to mind the former things and don't Ponder the things of the past. So what's he saying? As I studied this, I was struck by this. Is God contradicting himself? Is there some kind of deeper meaning here that we need to understand? Well, the first thing I think we have to understand is that it's always vital to have perspective, especially spiritual perspective. See, the Jews had a remembrance problem. They did not want to remember and did not remember what God had done, mostly because they were not grateful to him and didn't trust him. And when we're not grateful and don't trust, it limits us from not only recognizing what the Lord has done, but from what the Lord wants to do. Frankly, they didn't care. They had lost any desire for the Lord at this point. They really didn't care what he was doing or what he wanted to do. And all through scripture, even into the New Testament, God tells the Jewish people, remember Egypt. Or he reminds them of things like the Red Sea, which were spectacular, momentous, miraculous events that that should have been seared in their conscience even down through the generations. But Israel's problem was they didn't remember. 
And sin and pride does that. It distorts our thinking and it weakens our perspective to the, to the point that we're so full of ourselves that we don't acknowledge what the Lord has done. And Romans 1 talks about this as being kind of the height of the fall of the world. It says, even though people knew God, they didn't glorify Him, God, neither were they thankful. And once we stop being thankful, once we say, God, you're God, but I don't care. God, you're God, but I'm not going to glorify you as God. God, you're God, but I'm not going to be thankful for what you've done. Here's the rest of the verse. It says, they became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. See, ingratitude is an expression of pride, and it leads to self-focus. And once we're in self-focus, we're robbed of spiritual wisdom and discernment. Now, that's one side. Then there's a flip side to this point that kind of makes the same conclusion. And this is the principle that the Spirit really impressed upon my heart, and I hope I can articulate it, and the Holy Spirit helps us right now. This is the point that really stuck out to me. We can't be so preoccupied with the past that we miss the fresh work of God. See, right now, Israel and Judah are are at the tipping point in terms of judgment and scattering and and being taken captive. And, And right as they reach that point, look at what the Lord says here in the verse. He says, I'm about to do something new. See, this is the incredible mercy of God. Oh, God, help us to be struck by your incredible mercy this year. God is so gracious and so merciful and he's not stagnant God wants to and is ready to and is preparing to do a fresh work in the lives of his people and that will impact us more than we can imagine it will impact our marriages and our families and our work and our career and our church and our ministry and our witness and on and on and on and on God is ready to do a fresh work Now, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a fresh work of God. I'm ready for a fresh expression of His grace. So ask yourself, what's the fresh work God wants to do in me? What does God want to do in my life? Come on, we can't get to the end of this year and be exactly the same as we are now. There has to be something that changes. We need to be stronger in our faith, more passionate about the Lord, more effusive with our praise, more deep in our prayer, more effective in our witness, more in love with Him in every single way. We can't reach January of 2016 and say, well, the last year's been good. I haven't really progressed at all because God wants to do a fresh work do you desire that are you actively seeking it are you saying Lord it's a new year and I know it's just a calendar but but you want to do a fresh work we will only be ready and receptive for that if we're submitted to him as Lord of our life God wants to do a fresh work in this church. Think about where we started when 2014 started. We were downtown in a very cold building. Things were different. 2014's been an interesting year and it's been very challenging in many ways. But now we're in 2015 and God says, I have a fresh work for you. Over the next 12 months, I want to push you forward and I want to direct you and I want to utilize you to reach people for Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to prepare for that? 
Are we going to gather and call on his name and seek him and say, Lord, show us. Lord, teach us. Or are we going to just prioritize other things and sit back and say, well, we'll figure it out as we go. See, we can only be ready and receptive if we're submitted to him as Lord of our lives. And if we follow, look at the text, the second part of the equation. Don't ponder or dwell on the things of the past. Now, what would we dwell on that would cause us to ignore or miss out on God's new work? The obvious answer and the most, uh, the most uh, pure answer would be sin. Sin will always prevent us from understanding the work of God. We've, we've talked about that. We know that. But there are two other areas, and I really want to just touch on one that I believe the Holy Spirit wants to challenge us on this morning. And the areas are relationships and regret. What causes us to miss out on the fresh work of God? What causes us to, to push past what God wants to do to bless us and help us? Many times, all the time, it is sin. But secondarily, it is how we live in our relationships and how we deal with regret. And often those two things go hand in hand, but they have different expressions and different focus. Let's start with relationships. Let's just take a couple minutes this morning on the subject of relationships. And, and I want each of us to think about one very simple question. How much time, this is asking yourself, how much time did I spend last year, how many hours dwelling on someone who hurt me or in some way caused me interpersonal pain? Now, don't rush by the answer. It may be impossible to, to calculate exactly how many hours, but really, the specific number is not important at all. Let's get down to the essence of the point. Somebody hurt us. Somebody was critical. Somebody was mean. Somebody slighted us. Somebody left us out. Somebody wasn't willing to forgive us, or they did something so grievous and painful and, 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 and grievous to our heart that, that we just don't feel like we can forgive them. Or maybe it's not even last year. Maybe there's residual pain from years past, sadness and disappointment that just won't subside, or anger and hostility that we're still holding on to, and maybe with good reason, because of what somebody's done. Whatever the case, whatever the situation, whoever the person is, it, it, it is there and it causes us pain. And just that one thing, just the one we thought of when I said that, ha has caused us maybe dozens of hours of thought. Replaying conversations. Going through situations. Feeling the hurt and the frustration. Feeling the irritation of, of what the other person did. Maybe, maybe trying to make sense of it because it doesn't make sense. And we keep replaying it and replaying it and replaying it. And then you multiply that. That's just one. You multiply that times all the other instances of interpersonal annoyance. And you add all that up. And you say, how many hours? Days and days and days of thought and frustration and irritation because of what happened. Now you go back to the verse. Look at the text. And God says, don't call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. 
Now, we all agree that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for our reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, right? Everybody agree to that? So that means this verse is for us. That means even though God's talking to Israel specifically about what's going on with them, the spiritual principle still applies to us. So the Spirit is saying to you and to me, look at it again, don't call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Now, the question that then follows is, why would we do that? Why would we hold on to pain why would we hold on to something that hurts our hearts? Why would we allow it to persist? Or even worse, why do we purposely choose, and we do, to, to let it have a place in our heart and mind? Now, I believe there are a couple reasons, and let me go through these and we'll pray. One is that we've been wounded and the wound hasn't completely healed. One of the reasons we hold on to the past and hold on to, to the pain of that is we've been hurt and the hurt hasn't healed. Now that makes a lot of sense if it's been pretty recent, but it's a little bit harder to defend if it's been years. The Bible says that if we have been offended or if there is an offense in our lives that is unresolved, that it is up to us to go to that person even before we come into this place to worship. That we can't worship with a spirit and truth because we have this unresolved conflict with the other person. And we better leave the altar and go resolve it with them before we come into the presence of God because our heart is not right. And it says if you go to them and they won't listen, then take somebody else. And if they still won't listen, then you take another group of people. And if they still won't listen, then you relationally separate yourself from them. Now, if we've gone through those steps and there's still a wound, then, then we need to then ask the Lord daily, God, you've got to heal me because it's not going to be resolved. The person won't resolve it with me. I'm still hurt. I'm still frustrated. So, Lord, you've got to help me. You've got to heal me. And I have got to move on. And that's the key. Do we want to move on? Or, and this is very delicate here, is there something that we gain by holding on to the pain of the past? Is there something that we almost enjoy about it? Sometimes we keep the past close because it brings us attention and sympathy from others, and we like that. Sometimes we hold on to it because we're so used to being the victim that, that we don't want to let go of it and try something else. Now, please hear my heart. Please hear my heart. That's not to, to delegitimize the pain that we've endured. But like anything else that is wrong in our lives, anything can be healed by Jesus Christ. How many know that's true? There's a song we sing in prayer meeting, and we need to start singing it on Sunday morning. It says, I believe you're my healer. I believe you're more than enough for me. Jesus, you're all I need. Listen, if Christ can heal you and me, of the chronic disease of sin in our lives, he can heal any heartache that we've suffered. But we have to want to be healed. 
We have to be willing to let go of it and surrender it to him and say, God, that person hurt me and I may never understand why. And you know what? I'm deeply grieved and deeply wounded that that, that relationship is not ever going to be the same. And Lord, I'm still going to pray that that will be resolved. But Lord, I can't do any more. I've taken all the steps you've lined out for me. I've done it all and it's not satisfied. So God, heal my heart. Help me. Help me to move past it. And I'm still going to pray that someday it'll be reconciled. But, but Lord, I can't do any more. So we have to be willing to move past the wound. Second, another reason we hold on to the past is because we still want justice. Things never get satisfied uh, or, or settled to our own satisfaction. Even if they're settled, even if somebody said, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, but, but there's still resentment in our heart. There's still some kind of frustration. And, and maybe if we're not going to get a pound of flesh, we at least want a couple ounces. So we hold on to it and we say, well, that, that person wasn't sincere. And that person didn't really make it right. And it's, and it's not better. Now, the steps for re, uh, re, uh, reconciling this are the same. We have to go to them. We have to take other people. That, that hasn't changed. But, but maybe the person's resistant or maybe they're not willing to accept our, uh, the apology or we're not willing to accept their apology or something that, that we just feel like it's unsettled. And that's where it gets very dicey and very dangerous. Because if we're not willing to forgive them, if we think they're insincere, or we think that they haven't done enough to satisfy us, or whatever the case may be, if we don't close the book on it, then we are essentially holding them as a relational hostage. You have to do more. You have to satisfy me more. You have to make it better. I want more. You've got to grovel a little bit more. Can you imagine if the Lord did that to us? Uh, does God deserve justice more than anybody, right? So imagine if the Lord said to us, Hey, Paul, I know you repented of your sins, and I know you've trusted in Christ. But, but you know what? You continue to sin, so I really don't feel like you're very sincere about salvation. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you grovel some more. Show me a little bit more. And I know I say, once, I repent, once you repent, that I'll forgive you instantly, and your sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. But you know what? I'm reneging on that. I'm going back on that. You're going to have to do some more. Can you imagine if God did that with us? And yet, he doesn't. And there's a reason why he gives us the example of forgiveness by saying, I don't remember your sin anymore because he wants us to practice the same things. And instead of taking, uh, listing all the reasons why I can't and I, and I won't do that, you don't understand, and that person hurt me and they weren't sincere when they apologized. Listen, that, that's not up to you and I to determine whether they're sincere or not. It's up to you and I to forgive. And if we don't forgive, and we don't forget, then we're just holding them and ourselves hostage. Here's the third reason, the final reason. And there are more than three, I'm sure, but these are the three the Lord gave me. We sometimes hold on to the past because there's something almost comforting and cathartic about it. This one's strange, but I believe it's very real. 
Sometimes we hold on to the past because there's something almost comforting about it. Even though it's painful, we're, we're kind of nostalgic about it. It's been part of our lives for so long that we're scared to let go of it. And we replay it in our minds, and we repeat it to others, and they've heard it 30 or 40 times, but we say it to them like it's the first time. Did you know I got hurt at one point? And they're like, yeah, you've told me. Well, I need to just tell you again. I was so hurt, and it's almost like we enjoy holding the grudge. It becomes part of our identity. Remembering what we've come through is fine if we're using it to praise the Lord for his goodness and his faithfulness and his provision and sufficiency. But if we hold on to it to keep ourselves in turmoil, then we're not honoring him. Think about the worst moment of the last year. I'll give you a second. The the moment where you woke up and you were in fear and you were in anxiety, and you had genuine concern. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I don't know if I can handle this day. I don't know what I'm going to do. And it was so painful and so harsh and so depressing, and you thought someone or something is going to cause my life to be so unhappy. Do you you remember it? Can you feel it? I can remember a couple times in the last year where I was just like, oh, I cannot do this day. Today is January 4th, 2015, and that day that you just thought of is done. It's in the past. It's over. And you know what? You got through it. And God was faithful, and God helped you. And you may be still feeling the residual of it. You may still be a little bit frustrated, but the Lord got you through it, and he healed you of that problem. Now he says to you and me, Don't call to mind the former things. Don't dwell in that. Don't live in that. Move forward because I'm good. God has secured our lives so we can walk by faith and so we can be joyful and content even in the worst circumstances. And he transforms our sadness and regret into victory. But the enemy comes along and he just wants us to live in resentment and lack of forgiveness. He wants us to constantly be in a bad mood, but that's not indicative of someone that lives by the Holy Spirit of God and someone who is filled by the Holy Spirit of God because God is a great God of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and he is the God who delivers us and says, you are an overcomer. He doesn't want us waking every morning going, oh, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm so anxious. I'm so fearful. I can't handle it. I'm so hurt. No, that's, that's not what Christ died to do. There's a thin line between experiencing hurt and living in hurt. And we need to be careful that we don't live in hurt, but that we, as we experience hurt, whether it's by trial or by sin or by somebody else, that that we don't use that to limit who we are. How much time and stress and, and pain could we save in this new year if we forgot the slights and pushed back the grudges and and handled the hurtful things of our past and just moved on. And when somebody hurts us in the new year, we don't sit and dwell on it and say, wow, I am so offended by what you've done. We just say, you know what? God is gracious and God is good. 
and I'm going to live in his mercy, and I'm going to live in his grace. Don't you think that would honor the Lord so much more? Don't you think that's indicative of living like Christ? We spend so much time in stress. And God wants us to live in freedom and enjoy. So how do we do it? Let me give you three very fast applications, one minute each, and we'll pray. How do we experience the freedom of letting go and moving forward? These are very basic. Number one, we have to pray. We have to pray. I'm going to say it again. Say it with me. We have to pray. Are we asking the Lord daily? Are we asking the Lord daily to heal our past and to help us move on? If not, we are not utilizing the greatest resource that God has given us to live out verse 18. His grace is more than sufficient, but we need to be asking him every day, Lord, pour out your grace on me. So many times we live our faith by proxy. Well, God, you've delivered me, and of course you'll continue to show grace on me, and he will, he's gracious, but he loves it when we say, Lord, pour out your grace on me. Pour out your healing on me. Pour out your kindness on me. Teach me what it is to trust you. Teach me what it is to put the past behind me and to live by faith and to walk by faith trusting you. God loves that. So first of all, we need to pray. Second of all, we need to let go. We have to want to get past the past. For whatever reason we're still holding on, it is having a damaging effect on us physically, emotionally, and especially spiritually. Now you may say, well, Paul, you don't know how deeply they hurt me. It was so unfair, and and it changed my life. Listen, I understand a little bit about that. But we cannot continue to hold on to it. And here's the question we have to wrestle with. If the Lord doesn't hold on to our sins, then how do we justify it or feel that we have the right to hold on to the sins of others? If Christ says, I forgive you, I exonerate you, I don't remember it anymore. It's like there's zero record of you ever sinning against me. And he's completely holy and completely just. Then how can I justify continuing to have resentment and and anger and, 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 and hostility and lack of forgiveness towards somebody that's hurt me? Forgive as you've been forgiven. Oh, is that a hard verse to live. But that's what we're told to do. We need to let go of the past. Somebody's hurt us. We need to put them before the Lord and say, Lord, I hope someday that'll be reconciled and that they'll apologize. But if not, I'm trusting in you and I want to be healed of it. Third and finally, we need to seek God's new work. As hard as verse 18 is to live, and let's read it one more time. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. As hard as that is to live, the next line is so wonderful. Behold, I will do something new. And look how he describes it to Israel and Judah. He says there's a roadway in the wilderness 
There are rivers in the desert. There's water there that I'm going to give to drink to my people. And the end result will be that they will declare my praise. I don't know about you, but 2014 was not the greatest year ever. But I eagerly anticipate the fresh work that the Lord is going to do this year. And as God does it, I want to praise him with everything that I have. As God shows this congregation where we're headed next and what he wants to do and how he wants to use us in ministry, we need to anticipate and seek and pray for and call on him and say, Lord, we want your fresh work to be done. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to be held back by our past. We don't want to be limited by the grudges that we're holding. We're just going to come before you and we're going to seek you and we're going to call on your name and we're going to say, God, show us your fresh work and we will follow you. And you know what will happen when we do that? God will show us. We're not going to get to a place where we call on him and say, Lord, show us your fresh work. And he says, nope, don't feel like it. Don't believe I want to do that. I know I told you I would, but mm, I changed my mind. What is the fresh work that God wants to do in your life? What is the something new that God wants to do to transform you and change you to be more like Christ? What does he want to do with this church? Lord, we want to anticipate that fresh work. We want to anticipate what you're going to do.